0: Here's your host, Radical Russ Bellville.
1: Good day, tokers and toquettes and non-toking lovers of liberty. Radical Russ here, but not really. It's time for my semi-annual two-week vacation. That means for the rest of this week, you get to hear the best of my most recent interviews, segments, and rants. So sit back and relax and smoke them if you got
0: them, because this is the best of the Russ Bellville Show. The world of cannabis is evolving at a frenetic pace. The Russ Belleville Show gets behind the headlines to take a deeper look at breaking news in our Cannabis Focus.
1: Throughout the fight to end adult marijuana prohibition, there has been a constant refrain of treat marijuana like alcohol. The public is increasingly aware that marijuana is safer than alcohol. And it seems only logical that if our society can handle the legalization of the most harmful drug people consume for fun we should be able to handle one of the safest drugs people consume for fun. The public and our elected officials have largely taken that mantra to heart. Treat marijuana like alcohol, we asked. So now we're selling it in adults-only shops where we check IDs. We're having marijuana inspected and tested and labeled, just as we'd expect a bottle of wine to have an accurate labeling of proof and be free from contaminants. We even have scientists working to create a breathalyzer-style device for roadside sobriety testing to treat marijuana like alcohol, even though in this case, marijuana is nothing like alcohol. So why does the treat marijuana like alcohol concept fail to create venues where adults can gather to consume marijuana? A vapor lounge, a cannabis cafe, a pot bar, whatever you might call it, analogous to a whiskey lounge, a wine cafe, or a beer bar. Why the disconnect? I can think of few things more un-American than recognizing the rights of a citizen while maintaining code that makes exercising those rights impossible or impractical. We fought many battles as a nation to recognize the right of Black Americans to vote, and then fought many more battles to ensure that right could actually be exercised. What good was it to pass the Fifteenth Amendment when those states seeking to re disenfranchise former slaves? could do so through poll taxes, literacy tests, and other then-legal means. It took almost another century to truly protect those rights through the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And sadly, today we have a Supreme Court that's amenable to ratcheting back those protections. Today in Washington, Oregon, and Colorado, a citizen of 21 years of age has the right to possess cannabis. But what good is that right if its real purpose, the right to consume cannabis, is impossible or impractical. If you don't own your own residence, you may have no legal place to smoke pot. Landlords may ban that, and public housing of all kinds will ban that. Toking up in public is forbidden, and no hotels are going to allow it either. Imagine the uproar in 1933, if Prohibition had ended, and adults were once again allowed to buy, possess, and consume alcohol, but all bars, taverns, and pubs were illegal, and restaurants could not serve alcohol. Preposterous! Especially when you know our country was founded by hard-drinking men who did a lot of their meeting in taverns. Any argument that can be made for the societal danger of a cannabis cafe is laughable in a nation where 19 million adults consumed alcohol in over 65,000 taverns last year. In almost every town, we have at least one building designed for the express purpose of allowing adults to consume a deadly impairing drug called alcohol. These buildings often have parking lots where we expect adults will park their cars while they drink, and then we trust them to return to their cars and drive in an unimpaired state. We know for a fact some of them will be impaired when they drive away in the wee dark hours of the morning and we know statistically that will lead to 30 people per day dying because of an alcohol-impaired driver. If we can accept that known societal danger as a reasonable trade-off for the freedom of adults to consume alcohol in a public setting, there is no credible reason why we shouldn't accept buildings where pot smokers can gather and consume, especially when they are far safer drivers afterward. Of the currently legal states, Only Alaska has made the sensible choice to allow for adult-use venues. Colorado does not, but an initiative to allow it in Denver has brought the government to the table to at least discuss pot lounges. Washington State has felonized such clubs to the point where a bar owner who doesn't shut down incidental pot smoking can be busted for that felony. Oregon, meanwhile, has shoehorned vaporization and cannabinoids into a Clean Air Act that was predicated on reducing the proven known harms of secondhand tobacco smoke, even though secondhand cannabis vapor has never been shown to produce those harms. Washington DC's city council just briefly, for a half hour, legalized private club consumption, only to reverse the decision after the mayor worried about opening this Pandora's box. The tide may be turning for private marijuana clubs, however. The 2016 initiatives to legalize marijuana in California, Arizona, Nevada, and Massachusetts all provide for the possibility of pot lounges, while Maine's initiative guarantees they will exist. It's time for the currently legal states to recognize that without cannabis cafes, tourists and renters will just light up in alleys, parks, and other public spaces where we don't want marijuana consumption. The whole point of legalizing marijuana was to treat marijuana like alcohol, because only through legalization do we have control. This is bullshit. It's like Cypress Hill concert in here. So let's get to it. Let's get these marijuana lounges opened. Let's get these laws changed. Here in Oregon, we're going to be working with Portland Normal in the short session to come up with an exception to our Clean Air Act, something like the cigar bars get... That's the worst hypocrisy. We allow cigar bars in this state, but not cannabis cafes? Insane.
2: The cannabis industry is growing. Business is booming. And as new opportunities arise in newly legalized states, each market is getting more competitive. Call Canna Management Corporation and let our team get you ready to grow. 415-269-8015. That's 415-269-8015. Or visit canna-management.com educator, author, and advocate, Dr. Mitch Earlywine, is here to tackle the burning issues. Author, Katherine Hiller, and her great new book, Just Say Yes, Marijuana Memoir. So I
1: love the way you use time in the memoir.
3: I started it at the present time, and I described a visit to my dealer, and then I would go backward in time so that every chapter starts a little bit earlier. I do not feel that marijuana has in any way harmed my life. It certainly hasn't led me to the streets. It's led me to a more joyful life experience.
2: Burning Issues, only on CannabisRadio.com. Coming soon to a city
1: near you. Cannabis Finance Bootcamp. Get all your cannabis accounting, legal, and compliance questions answered by their knowledgeable panel of industry experts who want to help your cannabis business boom. Whether you're a grower, dispensary operator, or a newcomer to the field, your cannabis business needs Cannabis Finance Bootcamp. For information on upcoming events, visit CannabisFinanceBootcamp.com. You're listening to the best of the Russ Belbel Show. Here's another
2: great segment from our past six months of episodes. This portion of grassroots marketing on location on Cannabis Radio is presented by Norik Risk creating unique insurance solutions for the hemp and cannabis industry is a passion of norik risk rooted in over 100 years experience placing custom extra large insurance programs worldwide learn more at norickrisk.com. risk.com cannabisradio.com presents grassroots marketing on location Featuring exclusive one-on-one interviews with those impacting and evolving the cannabis industry. Now, let's go on location to the 2016 NCIA Cannabis Business Summit in Oakland, California.
1: Welcome back to Oakland. I'm Radical Russ live here at the Marriott downtown in Oakland. And we're here with Lauren Vasquez, my fired up lawyer and a representative here from the Adult Use of Marijuana Act. Lauren, welcome back.
4: Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming out to NCIA, joining us here in Oakland.
1: Glad to be back in the Bay Area and always good to see you. So we've got the Adult Use of Marijuana Act. Looks like it's going to be on the ballot. And Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom here uh, was here yesterday making an impassioned plea for the investors and the big money types here to understand that Sean Parker ain't going to fund the whole damn thing. So tell us a little bit about the funding and the fundraising for the Adult Use Act.
4: Sure. You know, it it takes a lot of money here in California to to run an initiative, due to the the extensive costs of signature gathering, the media that has to be paid for, uh, and of course we're a large state, so any kind of advocating here takes a lot of uh, time and money. And so uh, we have our tried and true supporters here in drug policy, um, groups like the Marijuana Policy Project, Drug Policy Alliance, who've Worked with donors um, who funded our movement for years now, uh, so they are a, a part of the coalition that is funding our initiative here in California. Um, of course, we have a couple of other um, groups of donors that um, really come from the, the philanthropy side of things, not so much the industry, and and that's really what you know. Gavin uh, was emphasizing that these folks they've been donating for years and they're you know they've got other issues that they want to move on to now that they've su- seen the success of this industry and the money coming in and so it it they're, while they're backing away, uh, the industry needs to step up and take their place and, and start funding this. So I, I hope they heeded uh, Gavin's words yesterday.
1: And you would think that they could see it from their own enlightened self-interest that there won't be that $20, 30000000000 billion market to play in if we don't legalize it.
4: Sure, sure. There is this feeling of inevitability that it's just going to happen. And and we know with cannabis that that nothing's inevitable. We went from an an impossibility just a few years ago. It can't be inevitable by now. That's way too quickly. And so, you know, we've seen in the past with, with corporations how they don't see how some of these things do affect their bottom line, like sustainability and economic justice and worker protections that in the long run do help their businesses. So uh, this industry needs to learn that that this industry is politics. And um, if they're not supporting it, their business isn't going gonna, isn't gonna to succeed, isn't going to thrive, might not even be.
1: Yeah. I know in the last uh, election cycle, 2014, I did two or three business uh, events in Florida. And everybody was all high on the poll numbers. It's 80% in the polls. It's so high in the polls. It's inevitable. Of course, they needed 60% in Florida, and then the next thing you know, Sheldon Adelson shows up, the Nevada casino billionaire, drops $4.5 million into attack ads, and they lose with 58%. Is there a fear that that big money is showing up because, I mean, California is Waterloo for prohibition here. Do you have a feeling that that big money is going to come to oppose us?
4: Well, we've already started seeing some of the the police chiefs and the usual suspects organizing against us, and and so for them it is the matter of just getting one or two big funders uh, to to fund what they want to uh, to do in their opposition campaign. Uh, it, it will take a lot of money, so uh, you know those donors will have to give give big. But uh, they do have a lot of traction and can earn a lot of media, being the police chiefs. And so um, we we do have to prepare for the worst. We have to anticipate that the opposition will be well-funded, will be sophisticated, will be credible to the people that they're trying to reach. And so... Uh, the, the money is what talks here, and so we need to make sure our ward chest is bigger than theirs. Here
1: in the Bay Area of California, obviously marijuana is very popular. Uh, Northern uh, Emerald Triangle and somewhat in Southern California... But California's big as you mentioned and there's a lot of places that aren't so fond of cannabis. What are some of your what are some of your messaging techniques to those more reticent Californians as to why this is in their best interest?
4: Well, some of those places is where I grew up. Uh, <laughs> so I am a Californian by birth, but doesn't necessarily mean we all grew up in San Francisco and yeah. you know such enlightened folks and I I grew up in Ventura County and the Ventura County chief has decided to be the face of the opposition okay. and uh, that he's going to make his name off of this and it's unfortunate because there is a lot of uh, uh, use of marijuana by young people in in communities like that suburbias where you know parents are worried about keeping their kids safe and they think taking drugs off of the streets is is gonna help do that except for you know, they think that's by banning it. Right. And so we've got to reach these folks and let them know the marijuana's there. Trust me, I know. I grew up there. It's here. <laughs> it's being grown there. And so uh, it's a matter of taking it off the streets by regulating it and yeah. putting it into just stores and requiring ID checks and uh, just making it less accessible. So... You know, the Adult Use of Marijuana Act does have a 21 age year limit uh, for people to be able to purchase. It does, however, not criminalize young people. If you are un- under 18 and you do, Uh, you know, decide that uh, you're going to break the rules. It's not going to be a lifelong, you know, mark on your permanent record. It will be community service, drug education and treatment if necessary. And, uh, you know, letting these kids know, hey, you might think it's fun, but there are consequences to this. And if you're going to do anything, do it safely. And so uh, the tax money is also going to go to fund that uh, stuff. So, you know, we, we don't want to be criminalizing the young people, but we do want to make sure 21 and up so that we leave that buffer. And parents, you know, they know if you've got a 19-year-old brother, who can go to the pot store. Sure. The 16-year-olds will get it. And the 21-year-olds, they take that responsibility a little bit more. So it'll prevent some of the diversion. Take the weed off of the streets. and. They'll start checking ID and it'll be tested. So if the the kids happen to get it, at least it's not something, you know, from the black market that maybe had something sprayed on it or was grown with really dangerous pesticides or is the brownie their friend friend made? That's you know just not quite up to par. So in, in the long run, it's regulation that keeps our kids safe. And so reaching out to those communities with with that message is is really what's going to move them because they're they're just afraid for their children, and any parent would be.
1: And I'm sure uh, this is this task is a whole lot easier given the latest data coming from Colorado showing. Uh, yeah, at first I, I think Christopher Ingerham from the Washington Post pointed this out that you know we first said we're going to legalize and and then they and we showed them the national figures and and nationally kids weren't using more and they said oh well, you got to look at Colorado. It's like okay so the Colorado figures came out and the kids weren't using any anymore and they said oh well you got to look at the 11th and 12th grade. And so now the 11th and 12th grade figures have come out and they haven't gone up any and now they're saying well you're not looking at the right years. It's like they're running as Ingraham said they're running out of cherries to pick. <laughs> Running so uh, is this information now uh, making its way into your campaign and helping to is is it working is it is it allaying the fears of some of these parents it,
4: it is really new it's it's uh, it's just coming yeah. out but um, just you know when the media does spread that kind of information uh, and does help get the facts out there the research what it's shown the positive effects of, of ending prohibition uh, it is of course a great advocating tool um, and mostly at the local level with the the police chiefs who are saying your kids are going to have access to drugs, people will be you know, uh, committing DUIs and they'll be dangerous on the roads, um, when we can show them facts, that's the best tool we have. Any
1: specific, you know, uh, we see, uh, speaking of polling and such, uh, we see consistently, and uh, not just California, around the country, uh, a lower support for legalization among women and Hispanics. And I've got you here to address the question too. So what is some of the messaging that's going to help get through to women and to Latino communities that uh, this is in their best interest as well?
4: You know, a a lot of of women, at least my age right now, there's this trend and we're educated, we have careers, and we don't have children. And uh, we we maybe use cannabis or don't, but we, we see from a perspective of, Maybe we shouldn't be putting our friends and family in jail. And so uh, that message, you know, it's it's almost a lot of women, we've, we've got it. Um, but then you have women who are parents and, you know, no doubt that instinct kicks in and you just want to protect them. So, again, it's turning them away from that knee-jerk reaction of ban it, put people in jail, to the, oh, if we actually regulate this, we will be keeping our kids safer. With the Hispanics, it's a lot different. Um, you know, with my family, just very conservative, religious. Uh, mm-hmm. The grandparents, you know, uh, hardcore. And, and they, don't, they don't want their kids using drugs. Um, one, because they still think it's, it's medically dangerous. And, and two, the criminal justice aspects. And they're all worry, already worried about their kids getting in trouble and getting involved in the wrong things, the wrong folks. And so just very, um, just very worried and, and wanting to be very sheltered and um, maybe not necessarily getting access to the right information so you know the outreach to the hispanic communities is is vital and then there is the connection to the 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 drug war in in mexico and you know Mexicans in Southern California who have family members sure. uh, in Mexico suffering, family members who's who they've lost in in the violence. They they are getting it in Mexico. Making their changes in cannabis policy is actually reflecting on us here in California now, mm. helping us uh, with our initiative, which of course in the end will help them as well. Um, so so again, you know the knee jerk reactions of this is bad, let's ban it. To um, this is bad, but if we give the power to the the government, the police they will target the wrong people, and we're those people. And so it's an unfair prohibition. And uh, and also a little bit on the, just the cannabis education. You know, there's still... They've got the reefer madness a little bit, at least my grandparents. (laughs) (laughs) That might take
1: a while. Yeah,
4: yeah, but uh, the younger generations are definitely on it. One issue with the Latinos um, especially is just the right to vote. You know, um, if you're um, an immigrant, you might not have been naturalized. Uh, You can't vote. Um, If you're undocumented and you can't vote. Uh, My father's been here for 60 years. He's still not a citizen. Uh, He can't vote, so... No matter what uh, he thinks on this issue, it doesn't matter. Thankfully, he does support it. Yeah. He also supports Trump, though, so it's a good thing he can't vote. We don't, we don't need his vote. Well, I'm going to wrap my ma- mind around
1: Latinos for Trump for a second. Latino Hold on.
4: immigrants, yeah. non-citizens for Trump. <laughs> I, gotta work.
1: I don't think I can smoke enough weed. to That's a to whole get that.
4: other episode. I I ain't
1: got weed strong enough yeah, to figure that out. That's a whole uh,
4: study, psychological study there. But no, the the women um, and the Latinos, just like any community. Once they get the accurate information, we're on board. Right
1: on, right on. And uh, speaking of uh, incomprehensible uh, policy positions, there are people here in California that smoke marijuana, smoke a whole lot of it, and they will tell me that this is not true legalization. It's a monopoly scheme that's only going to put more people in jail and somehow take away my birthday. So for those people out there that are part of our tribe, the cannabis consumers that have these... Notions about what Alma re- is and how it's some sort of hidden plan to destroy the world. Can you allay some of those fears?
4: Sure, sure. This is definitely not the last step in in this movement in the in this in this process for us. This is just one of many that have come before and one of many that will come after. And so there's always a lot to be worked out in policy. Compromises have to be made. And so this is the initiative that we have, and it's going to do a lot of good. And it does reduce criminal penalties, and folks are confused thinking that it does raise them in in some categories, and and it does not. It also doesn't create any new crimes like some folks are worried about. And it also doesn't affect Prop 215 because it really is just focused on the adult non-medical market. So the regulations affect that. And in California, those of us who are concerned about um, patients and their access and the small farmers and what's going to happen in the next couple of years... Uh, we really should be focusing on MRSA, the Medical Marijuana Regulation and Safety Act, which did amend Prop 215 Mm -hmm. in what I think is an unconstitutional manner. And it did throw out the collective and cooperative system that protects the small growers and allows the patients access to an affordable source of medicine. Not a dispensary retail markup price, but direct from farmer prices. And so really a lot of that passion I I wish would be directed towards MRSA instead.
1: is a misdirection by some people they're 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 identifying the wrong enemy
4: absolutely and MRSA can still be fixed there's implementing legislation there's the bureau that's developing regulations and they're taking our input and whatever comes up with MRSA all these details they work out is going to mirror that and so right now we have the ability to affect it to change it to mold it to be what we want it to be the best that it can be and so, really, the, the focus of AMA is the, the social justice, the racial justice aspects, and ending prohibition so we can keep people out of jail. So, it focuses on the criminal, you know, um, repeals. It focuses on putting the tax money in the right places. It lets people expunge their records. It will release people if the crime they're charged with is no longer a crime. And most importantly, it will uh, restore the Fourth Amendment by obliterating the plain smell exception to the warrant requirement and that plain smell is subjective and it's used disproportionately against young people of color almost specifically states cannabis is not contraband it's no longer grounds for a search and so thousands of people who've been illegally legally stopped in search will no longer be subject to that and so we will restore our rights for everyone, but especially bringing protections back to our people of color who have been targeted in this war.
1: Yep. So. Just in time for the police departments to start uh, working under this new Supreme Court ruling that allows them to search people if they have a traffic uh, ticket.
4: Unbelievable. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Unbelievable. It's pretty sad the way things are going, but this would be do a lot to restore some of that and a lot to to change the precedents that have been based on it as well. Um, And so we've seen this happen in other states. Arizona had a ruling, medical marijuana is not contraband, not basis for a search. And so uh, I think that will be the biggest change and we have to look at the big picture and where's the most harm being done in marijuana prohibition? Alright, let's stop that right yeah, now yeah. and then we'll work on how can we make a great industry? How can we make sure we have the best cannabis available? How can we make sure California is the center of the cannabis universe? Let's get our folks out of jail first.
1: Right on. Lauren Vasquez from the Adult Use of Marijuana Act. Let's give people the websites and Twitters and all that information they need.
4: We are Let's Get It Right CA.com. So it's let's get it right ca.com same thing on facebook and twitter um you can also go to ama 2016.com a-u-m-a 2016.com this is a site put up by mickey norris and chris conrad it's got a great version of the initiative with a table of contents you can skip to you can do a page search for whatever it is you want to find and makes it really easy to go through and do some of the fact checking that folks need to do
1: and how about for Lauren Vasquez, if people want to get in touch with you?
4: I am the Fired Up Lawyer, so Google me. It's fireduplawyer.com. Fired I'll be there, Fired Up Lawyer on Twitter and Facebook. And anybody wants to reach out to me about the initiative, please do. All right. Let's get it right,
1: California. Let's get this passed and... Uh, Start toppling the dominoes across the rest of this country. You know, it's not Florida's turn, it's not Texas's turn until it's California's turn. If you want it legal in your state, start uh, getting in touch with the friends and family you have in California. Make sure they're registered to vote. Make sure they vote for the Adult Use of Marijuana Act. Lauren, great to see you again. Thank you, Russ. All right, stay tuned. we got more here from the National Cannabis Industry Association's Cannabis Business Summit when we return here
2: live from Oakland, California. Thank you for listening to this edition of Grassroots Marketing, on location, only on CannabisRadio.com. More
4: flavor. Cannabis Confidential with Dr. Dina. Candid. I want to give you the inside story. Captivating. I want to introduce you to my kind and amazingly talented friends. Compelling. We get to meet some of the most amazing cannabis activists and warriors around.
1: don't want to spend money on a night out but don't know what to do other than watching tv or playing video games consider playing guitar bass banjo or mandolin the instrument will give you hours of entertainment with friends with minimal expense stop by the fingerboard extension downtown corvallis at 120 northwest 2nd street today or check out its inventory on the web at fingerboardextension.com You're listening to the best of the Russ Belbel Show. Here's another great segment from our past six months of episodes.
0: Activism begins with ACT. The Rush Bellville Show features the stories of hardworking grassroots activists working for an end to prohibition in today's activist agenda. Welcome back, everybody. As we close
1: out the weekend, we get to visit with one of my favorite people out there, an activist who's been doing this at least twice or three times as long as I have. It's Lynette Shaw on the phone. How you doing, Lynette?
3: Hey, Rush. Hi.
1: Hey, good to talk to you.
3: Great to talk to you.
1: So, uh, for folks out out there listening, uh, Lynette Shaw is the founder of the Marin Alliance for Medical Marijuana. uh, It's—is it the first or just one of the first? Or how do you guys fit in the history there?
3: It was the very first of the nation to be granted a license, a licensed and regulated. We invented the licensed dispensary system in 1997. And I held the only license to sell medical marijuana for eight
1: years in the whole nation. That's right. So there were a lot of people that were helping patients even before medical marijuana became officially legal in 1996. I'm mean, going to go back to Dennis Perrone, Buyer's Club, all that yes. stuff. But you were the first one to get the, the, the blessing of your local government, right?
3: That's correct. So I was open before 2015 as part of Dennis Perrone's acolytes and in the midst of this terrible drug war and epidemic. We were one of the five clubs in California that were open before two fifteen, which was very scary. Yeah, no kidding. And, and also very necessary because we had we were number two in the nation for HIV/AIDS and number one in the nation for breast cancer.
1: Oh my! So Marin so Alliance it, is formed. You guys are working for eight years uh, through the late nineties, early two thousands. Uh, everybody at, in Marin County is cool with what you're doing. Everything's going along fine. And then what happens?
3: Well, we were actually open 15 years with no police calls, no trouble, no incidents, no problems whatsoever. And uh, the winds of politics changed, and uh, the Obama administration sent in Melinda Hague to, to seize my landlord's land because they could not shut me any other way. I had a license granted by municipal law, and uh, even though I had been sued by President Clinton six months later in 1998, we had the right to appeal. So I spent 15 years in federal uh, appeals over the right to have a license, and um, they could not win, not in California. So they cheated and took my landlord's land temporarily in order to shut us down in 2011 after 16 years of perfect compliance and no complaints.
1: And that's that. uh, It's about the time I'm meeting you. I'm getting involved in the in activism around 2007, 2008. By 2011, the shutdown's happening, and I and I got to see you at a few different events. Of after that point, where you know the, the whole world had come, you know. Crushing its heel down upon you, you lose the the dispensary, oh. you go bankrupt. Tell folks what it was like after that raid.
3: They removed all my tax deductions of the previous fifteen years and hit me with a ten million dollar back tax bill. They uh, they sent a treasury agent to the bank next door, the bank little bank of America, and threatened to remove their charter unless they got rid of my bank accounts. <laughs> you know, they removed my social security savings of my lifetime. They followed me around for years and years, and they also sent an agent to sit in my former landlord's parking lot to chase off all the tenants. He lost all his tenants. Um, After they sat outside my house for two years, I couldn't go anywhere. I could not speak freely. I could not work. I was barred for life anywhere in the nation from working in the marijuana industry.
1: Yeah, the industry uh, that I, you helped to create, you get an injunction against you that says, not only you can't do what you were doing at Marin, but nowhere in California, nowhere in Colorado, nowhere in the nation can you do the the thing that you knew how to do and love. That was just despicable.
3: Uh, it was crushing to me, you know, because I love the patients, and my specialty is match, matching strains to illnesses. And i work with you know, thirty or forty thousand individuals in my career. We had eight thousand five hundred and sixty-eight come through our doors of our little tiny place over fifteen years, and I loved each and every single one of them. That was my family. They took away from me. Yeah, that, that... that was that was you know that was my whole life, and and then I was barred. I mean, I couldn't go anywhere because those guys were following me. I couldn't make any speeches. I couldn't attend any meetings. I couldn't go to any events because those guys were following me. I had agents actually come up and bump me on the street, saying, "You know, if you give us some names and addresses, we'll go easier on you and walk away."
1: Jeez. that's
3: just—it's uh, just horrible and, and and unconstitutional. Yeah, and I, and I was devastated, and I was—I lost everything. My car got repossessed. I couldn't make the payments. I'm sitting here with no income, no no car, and a house in foreclosure. Um, so uh, it was devastating. I, went, I had to go on public welfare. It's all last year. Just to go to the food bank and get food stamps and um, try to survive and not be homeless. Which my lawyer felt very, very bad about this because he fought for us for you know, 14 out of, the, out of the 15 years we were on this case, you know. And he filed a he filed a... After the warbacher Farm Amendment was passed, Section 538 that removed money to prosecute medical marijuana dispensaries, we filed uh, with the, the the town of Fairfax. Um, they asked the judge to let me go. And the three three separate supervisors from the Board of Supervisors here in Marine County sent individual letters asking them to let me go. That I had done a sterling job in cooperating with the county, and we would be welcome back. You know, I had a support and terrific arguments, and the DOJ comes in, and the prosecutor says in open court, "Well, we don't care what other people have; she just can't have a dispensary." <laughs> <You know? laughs> and my judge absolutely hit the ceiling. He was furious. I've never, and I've never. Well, I'm a paralegal, and I went did a lot of marijuana criminal defense for many years, saving my people, right? Sure. But I have never been in a hearing where the judge stood up. He stood up out of his chair, leaned over his and points his finger at the DOJ and shakes that finger of shame at the DOJ, saying, Excuse me, do you remember equal justice under the law? <laughs> So that's when I knew I'd won the case, you know, but I I was like being as quiet as I could there in in the peanut gallery going, Oh my God, the judge just stood up and and shook his finger at the prosecutor.
1: (laughs) What an amazing sight. We're speaking with Lynette Shaw, the founder of the Marin Alliance for medical marijuana and where this case, uh, takes a national turn has to do with that amendment you, you mentioned. It's been passed twice now, uh, in the federal yes. budget, the, the Rohrbacher amendment that says the Department of Justice can't use money to bust state legal medical marijuana. And the Department of Justice had been saying, well, no, it doesn't. Uh, it just says we can't interfere with state legal marijuana. It doesn't say we can't bust people. And Rohrbacher came back and said, well, no, it damn well says <laughs> that's exactly what yeah. we meant. And, and I, this, I had is- the privilege and the absolute pleasure <laughs>
3: To smitch out the DOJ to Congress. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, that, and that's
3: I, We sent hard evidence for my case straight to Rohrabacher's office, said, "Look at this. The DOJ says they don't have to obey the the Rohrabacher Fire Amendment." You know, and and he, it, it, the, the entire, the, they got Congress to send the Inspector General to inspect the way they're prosecuting my case and every other case in thirty two states.
1: And that's the point
3: they sent in in the bulldog who could arrest Loretta Lynch. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah. And that's that's the uh that's the point of this is that by uh the court having to review your injunction, it not only frees you now, but it also has set that precedent of that's what the Rohrbacher amendment means. You can't go after people. Am I am I got that right?
3: Yes, exactly. And this has been helpful in many cases across the nation. It also forbids as spending funds for asset forfeiture over medical marijuana. Hmm. So this also, I believe, tipped the scale. And you saw where the the, the, the DOJ removed asset forfeiture from the table nationwide. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that we had something to do with that. Not 100% of it, but uh, definitely we tipped the scales because it is now a felony To spend, deficit spend funding, the anti-deficiency bill was passed by, you know, passed by the Republicans to stop deficit spending by Obama administration, right? Right. So, it's now a felony for a federal agency to deficit spend. Wow. So, yeah, yeah, and this is what the inspector general is (laughs) breathing down the neck of the prosecutors over medical marijuana now, thanks to the Shaw decision. And I'm very pleased.
1: That's so nice. You've got a decision in your own name, the Shaw decision. uh, The Shaw decision. That's wonderful. And uh, what's the status of Marin Alliance now?
3: Well, um, my landlord was forced to sign a terrible settlement under the threat of asset forfeiture where he cannot rent to me specifically or any other dispensary for the rest of his life, nor can his heirs.
1: Wow. Unheard of, right? Yeah.
3: So uh, he wants to, he wants to rent to me. The town wants me to reopen in the same place. It's the only place in our little dinky town that's full of schools that qualifies under state law. Uh huh. So there's one place and one place only, and it's barred forever by this, this terrible settlement. So we are planning to. Um, I got to raise some more money and get another lawyer for my landlord, who's willing to rent to me again. And the town wants to put me back there, but we're not sure how long that's going to take. But we are definitely going to fight for Mr. Izazi and the, our former location. In the meantime, because of the, de- the death of the Rent Alliance, there's been a huge medical crisis going on in Marin County with no dispensaries here for the last four-plus years. Mm. Um, they have finally come around to the realization how valuable the Rent Alliance was, and they have agreed to issue up to four licenses for dispensaries here in Marin. Uh, so I threw my hat into the ring for a county license in an unincorporated county territory just a a few miles away from Fairfax, and it looks good for me to reopen there by the end of this summer, like let's say August or September, when the process will be done with the county. In the meantime, we do plan to fight for Fairfax, but it's, uh, it's, uh, it's you know, not easy to do. It took me eighteen years to be free to this injunction and uh you know, I'm still willing to fight and continue to fight so that my landlord is free and that we don't have this terrible specter over all of us of being arrested and you know, over what is legal for us to do under state law.
1: Yeah, no kidding. Well, well I was
3: never arrested, I was sued. This this is the funny part, is when President Clinton sued me in nineteen ninety eight and brought me to civil court. This was like a chess game for him or something, I guess, you know, because I had an actual license. I mean, you can't really come over the heads of all local officials and arrest me, so they sued me for, for my license. But because I had, been, I had this unique license at the time, I'm the only one in the nation, I was able to appeal. I had the right to appeal, and the Constitution stepped in. And because I was in civil litigation over marijuana, I was... They they were barred from raiding me by the Constitution, double jeopardy. They could not arrest me and prosecute me criminally while I was in civil litigation over marijuana. Hmm. So it inoculated me from being raided. So while we were appealing, they could not raid us. So I kept my doors open the entire time and proved that a regulated dispensary would work to the satisfaction of all the locals and all the patients and everybody. Yep. So uh so I was able to fight like crazy, fifty grand a year legal fees for the Oof. whole fifteen years Oof. and uh and despite all the harassment and all the all the you know fear mongering by the feds, we were able to prove that this dispensary worked and so uh, I'm the godmother of all dispensaries.
1: <laughs> that's right and that's why they went after you they always go after the ones that are doing it right because they don't want that proof that it can work uh, to get out there in yeah. front of the people uh, Lynette if fee- if people want to help you and the Marin Alliance for Medical Marijuana how can they get in touch with you online or make any donations
3: That'd be great. I have a GoFundMe site GoFundMe.com reopen ma'am. M MAMM stands for Marin Alliance for Medical Marijuana um, I have my email, cbcmarinalliance at gmail.com. And I'm happy to speak with anyone about helping us. <laughs> they did appeal. Here's the strange part. The says appealed this, this scathing decision by Judge Pryor. Yeah. And uh, from what I understand, Rohrbacher has to retire in about a year and a half in term limits. Yeah. So they're hoping that the Rohrbacher amendment goes away and he can, they can uh, reboot their. Sure. It is drug war. Well, we'll
1: have to keep for in sure. touch with you on that, Lynette. We're yeah. out of time for today's interview, but thanks for joining us here, and we'll be in touch again sometime soon. Yeah. Anytime, Russ. You take
0: care. This is the Russ Bellville Show on CannabisRadio.com.
1: You know,
2: The business of cannabis should be no crime. Hemp Inc. is even hot-proofed by the man who run high times. Oh, yeah. Get it on Android and I and iOS today. Marijuana llama out. Got to tend to me on crops, channel. You know. Money don't make itself. Hemp Inc. The smoke is rising, and the next crop of podcasts devoted to cannabis providers and enthusiasts are ready to be harvested.
1: .buzz is the internet platform that fuels community interest, excitement, and new experiences. .buzz is the premier online destination for internet users seeking the latest news on a variety of topics. .buzz appeals to groups active in blogging, communications, journalism, advertising, and marketing. .buzz offers registrants a stronger alternative to the shrinking namespace of existing top-level domain names, such as .com, .net, and .org. Get your name now at Get.Buzz. You're listening to the best of the Russ Belville Show. Here's another great segment from our past six months of episodes.
0: We must wage what I have called total war against public enemy number one.
2: I support a change in law to end federal criminal penalties for possession of up to one ounce of marijuana. That marijuana,
0: pot, grass, whatever you want to call it, is probably the most dangerous drug.
3: Some think there won't be room for them in jail. We'll make them.
2: I experimented with marijuana a time or two, and I didn't like it. And didn't inhale. One major responsibility
1: is to encourage people to use less drugs. Entirely legitimate topic uh, for debate.
2: Radical Rant.
1: This weekend, one of Oregon's finest marijuana activists passed away. John Walsh was a kind man who was dedicated to achieving marijuana reform. He wasn't an organizational leader. He wasn't a medical marijuana clinic operator or grower. He wasn't in this for any personal accolades or financial benefit. He was just a man who believed in changing our laws and did everything in his power to effect that change. Now, I didn't know John personally, but I had met him at numerous events. He always reminded me a bit of the late Chicago Cubs sportscaster, Harry Carey, both had the kind of white unkempt hair and, and big glasses and kind of a, a childlike appreciation of the world. It was just, he was just a wonderful person to be around. And he was there for every March and every protest and every hearing and every event in our community He single-handedly gathered more signatures on more petitions for initiatives, both success and failure, than anybody else in our community. If you haven't signed, if you've ever signed a marijuana petition in the state of Oregon, there's a chance that it was John Walsh who collected that signature. And besides that, registering people to vote, he was relentless on getting people registered to vote. He did more in this state to bring some measure of compassion to our cruel marijuana policies than just about any other activist. Others can do far more justice in recounting the legacy of John Walsh than I can. I would encourage you to visit theweedblog.com where Michael Baccarat, the uh, executive director of Oregon Normal, has, has written a very touching tribute to him. But his death, <clears throat> as well as other recent Oregon activist deaths like Jim Clark and Jim Grigg, as well as some pretty monumental changes happening in my own life, have gotten me thinking about the personal sacrifices we make in our choice to be marijuana activists. You know, so many of us have given so much, so much of ourselves to fight this insane prohibition. I've been here for years now telling countless stories of good people whose lives have been drastically damaged or even ended by this fight. And I'm saddened when I see so many good people in this movement who give so much only to receive so little in return. While the carpetbaggers who five years ago didn't know a sativa from a Subaru are now diving into the market we created and making out like bandits. But you know, it's... it's, it's not just the suits who are reaping the rewards of our harvests that have me down. Too many of the heads in our own movement are the anti-John Walsh's. They're the people who are so effective at playing on the morality and dedication of hardworking, altruistic activists, using them up for their talents and connections to build their marijuana empires, praising them with empty words and promises rather than cold, hard cash and security. For all the great work that John Walsh or Jim Greg, or Jim Clark did for everyone else, what did they end up with in return? Massive amounts of respect, sure. A legacy of helping others, yes. But how much did they sacrifice for that? How much of themselves did they give away so freely and get so little in return? In my 10 years of marijuana activism, I have seen more backstabbing, conniving, vicious, nasty, junior high level immature behavior than in any other endeavor I've been a part of. And I was once a bass player in a band with a convicted meth felon and a schizophrenic as we played in biker bars for other convicted felons. (laughs) I've seen more honor and respect among outlaw crank gangs. Than I've seen from some folks in the marijuana movement. One friend of mine has been plundered for almost a million dollars by someone in the movement who has recently received national praise as a movement leader. Another couple of friends of mine are, are tech gurus, so talented they should be earning six figure salaries and living in McMansions, but instead have had their talents and work steadily leached off of by a movement leader while they struggle working day jobs and living in apartments. I have another friend who brought unparalleled media exposure to the plight of medical marijuana families, only to be viciously slandered and attacked by some in the movement. And another friend of mine had to go to court to recover tens of thousands of dollars of income promised for hard work done, but never delivered, by a movement leader. And maybe, maybe my own plight lately, has given me some tunnel vision. Just had to deal with my brother battling stage four colon cancer. And and, and the good news is, is that the cancer didn't spread. They removed all the cancerous parts of his colon and he's not going to have to do chemotherapy and it looks like he's cancer free. That's the good news. But it did kind of bring things sharply into focus for me. If that had been me, If I'd have gotten that cancer, where would I be? Being a marijuana activist doesn't provide much in the way of health insurance. Oh, sure, plenty of access to medical cannabis, but there's no no health insurance. There's no safety net. If that had been me afflicted by that cancer, I'd be in debt for the rest of my life. And um, instead of my brother, who's, you know, does a regular square job and has insurance and has everything taken care of in that respect. I've just known too many of these people, too many people in this movement who've been taken advantage by too many people in this movement. And it saddens me. So as much as, you know, there's, there's this feeling in our movement about the big marijuana and and the wall street and the yale mbas coming in to take over the movement at some level i'm kind of kind of happy it's them and not some of these conniving backstabbers in our movement who've used and abused and disrespected so many in our movement i'm kind of glad they're not making it i'm kind of glad that the wall street mba yale types are coming in because at least their backstabbing and conniving is just business. It's nothing personal. It's something that's a part of the shark-filled world of finance. But when it's abuse and, and, and disrespect and using people, coming from our own movement, coming from the people who should have more empathy, that should know better, that hurts me more. You know, maybe, maybe this is nothing unique to the marijuana world. Maybe the world is just a vicious, conniving, backstabbing place, and I'm more sensitive to its manifestation in our movement. But then there's a part of me that can't help but think that a movement born of black market criminal activity can't help but be disproportionately steered by criminal minds and dishonorable intent. So as we move forward in this new year, as we move forward in 2016, I'm moving forward with a, I guess, a sharper vision of, of what's happening a more exclusive vision of what's happening. I, I want to elevate those who are doing the right things. And I, and instead of punching down, I want to ignore and marginalize those who are doing the bad things. And as we get new entrants into the marijuana market, new business partners and and, and newbies that are joining us that we can show them the good parts of our movement, how hardworking and dedicated we are and that they'll recognize that and that there will be sharing of our uh, profits. There will be a, a, a piece of the pie for the people who've worked so hard to make this a reality. And I know that there's people out there, And I see it, you know, I, I get so much, uh, I get so much uh, flotsam and jetsam floating up into my Facebook feed. It's, it's always fascinating to me that people will tag me to make sure that I see something that was hatefully written about me. It's just, it's an interesting phenomenon. It's so junior high school. Sometimes it's so junior high. Sometimes that it's just, it's stunning to me to think that these are like, 40-year-old and 50-year-old adults doing these things. You know, i it's not like I, I, I expect to be a public figure and have uh, these strong opinions that I have and not be disagreed with. By all means, I could very well be wrong. That's why I always encourage people to look shit up. Don't take my word for it. If I tell you something, go ahead and look it up on your own. And I can handle being disagreed with and and thought that I'm, you know, wrong-headed or misperceptive or whatever it might be. But how quickly it turns from that to conspiracy theories and ad hominem and shaming and just these vicious attacks. And, 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 and some from people, <laughs> hell, the most recent one that came across was from an activist who's been on my show numerous times who I just saw in person in Washington, D.C., and got to meet his son. Got to meet his child. <laughs> and, uh, you know, whatever. So rest in peace to John Walsh, Jim Grigg, Jim Clar, Melody Silverwolf. Just, just a few of the people that I've met who... I've had disagreements with, as a matter of fact, uh, me and me and Melody Silverworth disagreed on a lot of things, but I always respected how strongly dedicated she was to this movement as well as Jim Clark and Jim greg and, and John Walsh. And I just hope as we move forward with the legalization of marijuana in 2016 and the future, that, that it will reward the people who are the most deserving, who work so hard for this. And, I'm going to do what I can to focus on that on uplifting our movement uplifting the best people in this movement and blocking unfollowing unfriending turning away rejecting the the negativity and all of the attacks and the and the insults and the, and the hatred that flows through this movement and I'm not innocent <laughs> I've I've been one of the haters. I know. I've thrown my bombs, too. But I'm getting older. Been over 10 years in this movement. And experiencing some massive change. So in that spirit of massive change and looking forward to a new year, I've made that resolution. No more punching down. And more time for elevating and enlightening the people who follow me and listen to the show and read my writings. I thank all of you for it. Looking forward to 2016. I'll see a lot of you out on the road in the Legalize America Tour. You can keep following my writing at hightimes.com, marijuanapolitics.com, and cannabisculture.com. But as we move forward to 2016, I'm also easing up a bit. And one of the things I'm changing is sticking to just one hour show per day. That's right. I, this is it. We're calling it for, for today. An hour is what you'll get from now on because I've also got to spend a little more time for myself too and thank you everybody for your understanding we'll be back tomorrow with more news and interviews you can use for the cannabis community joining us tomorrow we've got christine gordon from the missouri cannabis restoration and protection act talk about legalization in missouri for everyone here at iced over legal beautiful potland oregon i'm radical russ until next time take care of each other tokers
0: This is the Rust Bellville show. The Rust Belville show is blogging and podcasting daily at radicalrust.com. You take a scene, you plan <laughs> it, you grow it, you
3: giant, you roll it, you go in. You take a scene, you plan it, you grow it, you giant, you roll it, you go in. You take a scene, you plan it, you grow it, you die it, you roll it.